We've got retail, the social network, and three stock pitches you're going to want to hear. Get something to take notes with. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me from the financial capital of the United States of America, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Maria Gallagher. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Facebook. Uh, Meta Platforms, second quarter profits and revenue came in lower than expected, the stock's getting hit. This seems like, and this seems a little odd to say about a company this big, but Meta Platforms seems like a company in transition right now. And it seems like a rough patch because they are investing in the metaverse while trying to fight off TikTok, while also continuing to deal with Apple's increased privacy, which is affecting their ad targeting. Where do you want to start with meta platforms? I think that that's a pretty good overview. Um, I'll start with just a direct quote from the conference call from Mark Zuckerberg that says, it's always hard to predict how deep or how long these cycles would be, but I'd say the situation seems worse than it did a quarter ago. So he really didn't come out with a lot of reassurance right off the bat. I feel like you see a lot of CEOs saying, here are all of the things we're doing. It's going to get better. But Mark Zuckerberg really just was not mincing words. So Revenue was down about 1%. They lowered their guidance a bit. They still have the monthly active users of 2.9 billion, up 1%. They're still the most dominant social media platform. And like you said, he talks about two kind of strategic areas for them as they're shifting, is the AI and the metaverse. So with the metaverse investments, Reality Labs revenue decreased from 695 million to 452 million with an operating loss of 2.8 billion dollars. So they lost 2.8 billion dollars on an operating segment that brought in 452 million. So what we're seeing is their ability to acquire these um, more companies within this segment, I also think is going to be slower in the future. They're guiding for revenue to be slower in that segment as well. So the FTC is suing them to block the purchase of Within, which is the developer behind Supernatural, which is a fitness app. So that is really uh, they're in that investing phase with the metaverse, and they're not seeing the benefit yet, but they're saying, this is the long game. This is what we're seeing. We're really trying to be strategic with our view of the metaverse. And then the other strategic priority is increasing AI. And I think that one's also pretty interesting. So it's kind of shifting Instagram from less friends and family to recommending content. Like you said, they're trying to more directly compete with TikTok with their reels. People are complaining the platform is becoming less friendly to creators. People are spending less time on it. So From a strategy position, I think you're right in that it's kind of in a transition period. I personally don't love the strategic plans in either of these segments. So I think that they're really important to keep watching and see how those shift in the next couple of quarters, especially that AI spending on Instagram, because I feel like the past couple of weeks, couple of months have seen more creators and more users of the platform kind of step up and say, this is stop trying to be TikTok. This is a different platform. We utilize it differently. We can use multiple things. People can have different places they go for different things. And right now, they're, they're trying to directly um, compete. And I don't think that it is getting the, att- the positive attention maybe that they want it to. All things considered, uh, and I don't own shares of meta platforms, but all things considered, I would prefer that uh, uh, the CEO uh, of my company doesn't whistle past the graveyard and tells it like it is. So I hopefully people at least appreciate Zuckerberg's bluntness 
in terms of the current state of things. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for him and for shareholders, this stands in contrast to another big tech company, which is Microsoft, which came out earlier this week and reiterated their guidance for the next 12 months, saying, yeah, no, the, we, our view from three months ago to now has not changed at all. And I think, you know, when Zuckerberg comes out and says, yeah, no, things have gotten worse, unfortunately for him, it, it stands in contrast to Nadella's comments. Um, was there any color on the headsets, the VR headsets, which reportedly are going to cost north of $1,000? Um, because it seems like, among other things, for years of saying, no, we don't want to get in the hardware business. It's like, well, but now if we can start selling hardware for $1,000 a pop, maybe we do want to be in the hardware business. And I'm curious if there's any sense of how quickly that's going to be coming. So I think it's interesting. They're raising the price of the Oculus now $100. So that's what they're doing now from $299 to $399. And just kind of a history of the Oculus is they started selling that, I think, at about $800. And now it's been heavily discounted. They're selling them at a loss to just get more people interested in them. So they're saying, I think, maybe by end of 2022 for this new $1,500 headset. But based on that history of they come out with something really expensive and then there's not an interest, again, just kind of going off of anecdotal data or anec data. I haven't heard anybody talk about wanting to buy that, right? It's not like the next iPhone that everyone seems they want to have. That's not, I think, garnering maybe the excitement they want it to, but I am not really in that world. So maybe it is in um, different circles than I'm currently in. But so I, I'm going to be interested to see what the actual price point is and how well it sells when it finally premieres. For the first time in a long time, there was good news for Etsy shareholders. Second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Shares of Etsy are up 10% today. What stood out to you? A, a bunch of things stood out to me. So, for some quick highlights, their uh, sale, their gross merchandise sales were down about 0.4%. Um, to three billion, they acquired six million new buyers, but their revenue was up 10.6 percent to 585 million. That's with a higher take rate of 19.3 percent. And I think we're really seeing the continued impact of that transaction fee that happened in April, which increased the transaction fee from five to 6.5 percent. And I don't know if you remember, but there was the whole pushback from the SC sellers. They tried to do a strike. It seems that that wasn't necessarily successful, even though I do think that they made some compelling points about the fee structure of Etsy and how it's changing. But Etsy has been talking about some of their investments, including they increased their employee headcount, they're working on improving search, they're working on an Etsy purchase protection for items up to $250, so getting refunds. They're trying to enforce more of the handmade policy, so they removed 50% more listings last quarter than they did in all of 2021, so trying to maintain the integrity of the platform and seeing more handmade items as opposed to kind of the more manufactured things you might see on on other platforms. They did see some hit to their top categories. So home and living, which is about 30% of sales, was down double digits. Craft supplies, which is about 10% of sales, was about down an, again double digits. So I would say it was kind of an okay quarter. They're maintaining their most profitable users. They seem to retain a lot of the buyers they got through COVID. But I am still pretty concerned about this friction between the platform and the sellers. And I hope that Josh Silverman takes more steps to kind of reconcile that.
Yeah, Silverman is a CEO who seems like he's keenly aware of the challenge um, that he's facing here. Sometimes a company will come out with results, and they're a Rorschach test. You know, if you're bullish on the company, um, you can find something in there that supports your bullishness, and if you're bearish, you, you can find that as well. Um, as an Etsy shareholder, I, I'm not saying this was a you know a great quarter, and I share the concerns that you mentioned. Um, there were you know there were a couple of things that it, I saw that I thought all right this is this is the kind of thing that hopefully hopefully they can build on in the second half of the year you know adding six million buyers in the quarter like that's at a time when so much of the national economic conversation is around inflation uh, to me that's you know that's a, a meaningful data point now if it just stops there and it's and for the rest of the year they they flatline. Well, then that's a problem. But um, uh, hopefully, as as we sort of think about the next half of the year, they can sort of build on that. But where do you? And this is an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where where do you think this this goes next? The 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 tension you mentioned with the sellers, because Etsy is a business that over the last few years has made improvements. They have made investments to really appeal to sellers to make the platform work, not just for the people who go to Etsy to buy stuff, but for the people who are there to set up shop to sell things. Where do you think it goes over the next six to twelve months? I think it's a really good question, and I think it's kind of the most important question for Etsy. And I think. For a long time, it was kind of a symbiotic relationship. There was some friction when Silverman joined as CEO, but he, I think, really spent a lot of time working to improve the relationships with the sellers. I think the problem is now it's not just the transaction fee of 6.5%, right? It's that there's a listing fee, a transaction fee, a payment processing fee, an ad fee. So by the time a lot of these sellers are done, Etsy's taking north of 30 to 40% of their profits. That's not including how much the sellers pay to get their supplies, right? So it ends up being not worth it for a lot of sellers the way it was for a really long time. And for Etsy, which is a platform that boasts that a lot of these sellers are women, a lot of representation within underrepresented communities, a lot of people, this is their lone source of income. I do think that that discrepancy has gotten larger in the past year or so. And so I think that it would be important to see Josh Silverman take some steps to kind of reconcile that. Um, and I think, unfortunately, Etsy tries to say, you know, we're different than Amazon. We're really helping our sellers, and that hasn't been the reality. So I think that there's kind of two pathways if it can get more like Amazon and kind of lose some of those sellers, lose some of that. ESG element that I think makes Etsy a really compelling company, um, or it can kind of try and work more with the sellers. So I think, honestly, I think there's kind of a 50-50 chance. I don't know which direction he's going to go in. I really admire him as a CEO, and I've admired him, but the past years have made me personally, as both a shareholder and an analyst, kind of rethinking the way he's structuring it. We'll keep an eye on it. Maria Gallagher, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This summer, we've had three interns working with the Motley Fool investing team. Their internships wrap up this week, and they've each got a stock to pitch. Jason Moser joined them to discuss the companies they've been researching and why they could make for good investments. 
today we have three interns and three stock pitches for you. First up, it's Caitlin Colleen. And Caitlin, you are bringing Tractor Supply to the table today for us. Tell us a little bit about Tractor Supply. What does this company do? Hi, Jason. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, tractor Supply. Uh, I see a lot of Tractor Supply stores where I come from, but you know, I come from more of a more rural area. So if you're from an urban area, I understand if you're not familiar with a tractor supply store. So really what tractor supply does, um, they sell to people engaged in the more rural lifestyle or out here lifestyle as tractor supply likes to call it. Um, and that really includes your farmers and your ranchers. So um, if you're a farmer or rancher walking into a tractor supply store, you can really expect to find anything you need to upkeep your ranch or farm. However, ironically enough, they don't have tractors. So if you are a farmer or rancher looking for a tractor, don't go to Tractor Supply. <laughs> we'll get into risks in a minute, but boy, I hope that's not the a false advertising risk that we have to deal with there. Well, let's, <laughs> let's worry about that in a minute. Let's talk. Let's not talk about risks. Let's talk about why you think this is a good investment, right? I mean, that's really the uh, that's really what we're trying to do is figure out why these can be good investments. What makes Tractor Supply a good investment in your eyes? Yeah, you know, Tractor Supply uh, has been around for a long time. They've been they were founded in 1938, and with that, they've developed a really uh, large and extensive product line. And within that product line, you know, there's a lot of products that are applicable to the rural lifestyle, and this is a, a huge differentiator for Tractor Supply because you know, you, you can walk into a tractor supply, um, to maintain your farm, you know, say you need some chickens or um, some dog food for your dog. You can get both of those at tractor supply and it's hard to find this kind of variety of products, um, at their closest competitors, because if you're looking at who their closest competitors are, that's your home Depot or your Lowe's or your Petco. And, you know, if you walk into a home Depot, you can't get, you know, a box of live chickens and a, and a bag of dog food at the same time. So, their um, extensive product line may seem random to us, but to a farmer or a rancher, it really is really relevant, and it's 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 um, good at attracting that kind of customer that they want. Something else that's really interesting about Trash Supply is, you know, they've really attracted this new customer during COVID. You know, during COVID, everyone was stuck at home and doing home things, and that includes home renovations or gardening or raising chickens. And this really attracted people to what Tractor Supply provides and is selling. And, you know, increasingly during COVID, that kind of person was the millennial. And that's typically not who you see as a farmer or rancher. So now Tractor Supply has been introduced to this um, entirely new demographic. And it really um, provides a really interesting opportunity uh, for Tractor Supply. Yeah, I guess what 10, 15 years ago, it must have been virtual chickens via Facebook and Farmville and <laughs> graduating up to real chickens. I don't know. That sounds like a pretty fun lifestyle, actually. As I get a little bit older, I think I'm going to have to consider getting some chickens uh, in the mix as well. Um, sure. I, I like that a very differentiated, a very differentiated offering, separating themselves from from their competition. That's always a great thing. Uh, of course, no no investment comes without risk. What is what do you feel like is the standout risk for a business like this that investors need to be aware of? Yeah, I, I think the biggest risk um, with Tractor Supply is just to watch out for their acquisitions. Um, in the past, they they haven't made many. In 2016, they 
made the acquisition of PetSense. And, you know, since that acquisition, um, in my opinion, you know, I, I haven't been seeing the most favorable performance from PetSense, especially compared to their tractor supply stores. Um, and in 2021, they uh, recently made announced an acquisition of Orchland Farms, uh, which hasn't yet settled. Um, so I would just keep an eye out for those acquisitions because, you know, this isn't something they're experienced with and, you know, they typically grow organically. So as for risks, I, I would say that's the biggest one. I think that's great to point out. Acquisitions can be very beneficial, but they can be a very risky strategy, particularly for management teams that, that are not uh, that, that just don't have that experience. So, so yeah, you definitely learn from doing, but uh, but a big risk, and I'm glad you called that one out. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much. Great, great idea there. Thank you. Okay, next up, we've got Mr. Mason Tyndall. And Mason, I mean, we got the football season just around the corner. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm a big football fan. I like what you're pitching today, Penn Gaming. Tell us a little bit about what Penn Gaming does. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, I'll try not to go on a segue about how my Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year. I'll save that for another time. But uh, so, Penn Gaming, they're a casino operator. Uh, with a market cap of about $5.5 billion. They operate 44 casinos and racetracks across 20 different states. And they really actually transitioned over the past couple of years to being an omni-channel provider of gaming and entertainment and news with their acquisitions of a 36% stake in Barstool Sports in 2020, as well as the acquisition of the Canadian company, The Score Media and Gaming. So, it's a, they really uh, provide, through Barstool, some of the top sports podcasts in the world, such as part of my take. And then the Score Media's app has millions of users, and both are very attractive options. And I really uh, enjoyed getting to learn about the business. This is a little bit of a more difficult one to fully explain and, and understand in some ways, but but you've done a good job of breaking down the business. And so, talk a little bit about why you think Penn Gaming uh, is a good investment. So, with the kind of legalization of online sports betting and just sports betting in general, the past couple of years, uh, companies management. So, with their acquisition of Barstool, they had uh, gained uh, the Barstool Sportsbook, and then the Score Media just actually launched their betting app uh, in Canada as well over the past couple of months. So, with that being said, uh, I'm very bullish on the uh, business of sports betting, I guess you could say, being a younger kind of adult who follows sports. Uh, so, I think, and then it, that uh, mindset combined with the CEO, Jay Snowden's vision for uh, disciplined growth really, really kind of uh, hits home. So, they're making acquisitions uh, that really drive value to the business and kind of diversify from the traditional bricks and mortar gaming that they had to offer. And whereas, a lot of like the sports only like online sports betting companies such as DraftKings that operate only online and DraftKings is losing money. Penn's able to use their cash cow profitable bricks and mortar business to really fund their uh, online sports betting offering. And I guess the second second reason why I really like them is I think the market is actually kind of misvaluing them uh, compared to uh, what management sees as their growth heading forward. So you kind of compare price to sales ratio with DraftKings or even uh, MGM for that matter. Pin trades at less than a uh, price of sales of less than one, uh, which is DraftKings price of sales is over four. So I really think there's a potential misvalued by the market moving forward. Yeah, that, that's what strikes me with an investment like this. It, it does feel like you know, I generally like to believe the market gets it right, you know, in, in any given day. But but it does feel like a business in a space that could be very easily misunderstood in, in such a nascent stage, right? This is a stage that this is a, a space that really is just developing. And, and so that does that does seem like a potential opportunity there. Now, with that said, 
this this again. I mean, this is probably a little bit of a riskier idea than some. But what what stands out to you as is the risk that investors should be aware of with an investment like this? Yeah, especially since PIN right now, at least their online sports book. So it's more kind of like the in some most market in some markets it's near the top, but in most markets it's kind of that third, fourth, or fifth ranked uh, provider. So the legalization does not necessarily mean access in a lot of states. In some states, like Oregon, for example, with the legalization, it you have to go through their state lottery system. In states like New York, where PIN isn't authorized to actually operate, their barriers of entry are higher. So it doesn't always mean uh, just because it's legal in a state. It means access. So that's a potential investment thesis breaker for some states moving forward. Like I'm in Texas right now where it's not legal. So if it were to get legal, but then what if Pint can't get access to it? So that's something you'd kind of definitely have to watch moving forward because it's hard to control the politics of that kind of stuff. Thanks, Mason. Last up, wrapping up the show for us this week, uh, it's it's Disha Chalala. And Disha, you have, I think, what is, is probably could, could be considered a favorite among many, certainly many investors here at Full HQ, uh, but I think a lot of a lot of investors in our Foolish Universe really do. They're familiar with the business that you're pitching today. They like this business. It's Costco. Tell us a little bit about what Costco does. So Costco is a multinational chain of membership-only warehouses, and they offer their members low prices on a limited selection of products within a wide range of categories. Are you a Costco member, Disha? I am a Costco member, an executive member. Oh, so you speak from experience. You're one of the loyals. 100%. Yeah. That's very good to hear. So clearly, you have an affinity for Costco, as many do from the consumer side. But what do you think makes this a good investment? So, one of the main reasons that I think Costco is a good investment is their business model of selling items in bulk out of warehouses. Because not only does it allow Costco to sell things at a lower price point than their competitors, it also gives them the ability to reduce overhead costs and keep their shrinkage rates down. They have an average warehouse space of 146,000 square feet, so they're able to stack their merchandise on the racks above their sales floor. So it allows them to reduce costs associated with extra storage facilities. And then they also are, have people checking your cards as soon as you walk in and your receipts as you walk out. So they have shrinkage costs of about 1% of sales in comparison to major retailers like Walmart at 3%. And then also just their consistency. They have nearly 62.5 million households as members and an average renewal rate of 91%. And with membership fees making up 77% of their net income, they have a very consistent source of income. And they've also just been consistent with their earnings growth, paying dividends to consumers. I mean, even their management with their CEO being part of the company since 1984, they're very focused on long-term goals and just consistent with the way that they treat their employees, their business model, all of it. Yeah, I feel like I should hang my head in shame because I'm not a Costco member. I mean, we've got a, a house full of kids and dogs and a cat. I mean, I've got every reason in the world to be going to a Costco, and yet I don't. And I think part of that is because every time I drive by our local Costco, it it looks it's got it's the parking lot is so full it makes airports jealous. I mean, it's just it's always so busy. But hey, I guess that's a nice problem to have. I think one of the nice things about a business like this, and you mentioned it, it, it is it's stable, it's consistent, it's reliable. But again, as as with any investment, there there is always some level of risk of risk involved. What would you consider the standout risk for a business like Costco today that investors should keep in mind? Um, just the retail business is highly competitive, especially with the current economic conditions. Um, but I do they they have to um, Costco will have to continue to adapt, have the ability to adapt quickly to changes in the market as well as changes in customer. Um, expectations. And so, spending habits for consumers are changing currently. 
And I think that's something they have to be aware of and take into account and make sure that they can keep those prices as low as possible, even in the current economic environment. That's great stuff, Disha. Thanks so much. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.